Good morning. My name is Jason Fisher. I'm the high school pastor here at Scottsdale Bible Church, and uh, it is truly my privilege to stand up here today and to lead you in the Word of God. Today we are continuing our series called True in the book of Philippians that we're going to be going through this summer, and it's been a great study so far, and so we're just going to jump right in. Today's title, in fact, is True Unity. Unity isn't really one of those things that we balk at. I don't know that anyone in here would say, ah, you know, unity, that's just sort of a fad. That's just a phase that we're going through right now, and it's really in general, it's for the birds. None of us would say that. In fact, unity is one of those things that is a a common virtue in our country. United, we stand. Divided, we fall. It's a tried and true virtue. Teamwork and synergy are non-negotiable in the workplace. In fact, there's been so many dozens, maybe even hundreds of books written about that very subject. Teamwork, unity, it's a virtue here in our country. Most of us, if not all of us, would agree that unity works, at least what we would call unity. Every so often I attend a large event, such as a concert or a conference or a football game, and I love to people watch. Uh, I love to see how people particularly interact in social settings like that. And, and I was at one recently, and it sort of struck me that people have an instant camaraderie in settings like that, in large events. It seems that there's at least one thing, and that one thing seems to be enough to bind people and, and create a sense of unity, and it's usually the reason that they're there. And it shows itself in, in, in being able to strike up a conversation easily with, your per, with a person next to you. You wouldn't do that necessarily out in, in, the, in the world about your daily business. But for some reason, it's those events, it's those things that bring people together. And I find that fascinating because as I think about it, I realize that people, that we've been hardwired to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. We desire to have unity. We, we long to feel united with other people, even if it's really, really superficial. I find that interesting, and I believe that it's a God-given thing. We crave to have things in common with people. We crave to be a part of a team working together as a unit. Nobody wants to be a part of something that's non-productive, but being part of a team that is productive and that is working together and that is dynamic, boy, that is exciting. Teamwork is a common virtue in just about every aspect of life. But what I want you to see today as we open up the Word is that the unity we experience as followers of Jesus Christ transcends good teamwork. It is more than mere unanimity where we have all agreed upon something. It is bound by something much greater than common interests, and it is absolutely essential if we are going to live as God designed us to live. The truth of the matter is that while it's easy to find a few common interests, it's a lot easier to find a hundred things to divide over. As much as we crave unity, unfortunately, we're more familiar with division. And strife. This was a problem even in the church in Philippi, and it's one of the things that Paul addresses in his letter. So, would you turn to me to the book of Philippians? We're going to start in, in chapter 1, 
There are three passages that we're going to look at here in the book of Philippians because Paul returns to this subject of unity. I'm going to have the, uh, the scripture up on the screen for you. If you don't have a Bible, there's also one in front of you in the pew. But turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and I'd like to read straight through these three passages in the book of Philippians. And then together we're going to make some observations. Chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. Paul continues this subject just a few verses later. Chapter 2, verse 1. So, and really this is him picking up the thought from verses 27 and 28 of the previous chapter. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then we fast forward to chapter 4, starting in verses 1 through 3. Paul addresses a very specific circumstance here. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labor, labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the subject of unity in, in many ways is, is very familiar to us, and yet, like I said earlier, division is sometimes even more familiar, and we know, Lord, that that is not your heart. Your heart is for true unity, and I pray that as we unfold the, the Scripture here, Paul's words to the Philippians, that this true unity would ring out in our hearts, that we would jump with joy at the thought of real, true unity in you, Jesus, that we would be transformed here, that, that we would hear your words, that they would convict our minds and, and seep down into our hearts, Lord, and that we would be a church that continues to be unified, that strives towards unity, not just as a virtue, but, but something that is a value that we live, the choices that we make every day. In Jesus' name, amen. The true unity that the Bible speaks of, the true unity that Christ has rescued us to, the true unity that Paul talks about here goes far beyond greater means to productivity that the books about teamwork talk about. True unity is far more than just a means to a productive end. It is an essential character trait that marks the very being of the church as God designed her. This is non-negotiable. God has called us to be unified to be people of true unity. So there's some things I want to point out here in regards to true unity. The first is that true unity is found in our common identity. We have to start here. We have to realize that if Christ has rescued us, we've believed in the name of Jesus Christ, that he died and he rose for us, then, then our identity has been changed. The Bible speaks to that very clearly. And that's where this begins. We are united in that, in our true, in our, in our real identity. Look at what Paul says here. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let your manner of life. Historians tell us that the people in, in Philippi were predominantly Roman citizens, and they were proud of it. 
Philippi was positioned in a, in a very important trade route for the Roman Empire. And so they, they received certain benefits that came with their Roman citizenship. They were proud of that. And Paul taps into that here. He says, let your manner of life, essentially what he's saying is, is behave as citizens. It's a play on words. He's appealing to their, their, their national pride as Roman citizens. And he says, you know how you behave as Roman citizens? The pride that you have, the, the, the way you conduct your life according to that citizenship, your identity. Let your manner of life in Christ reflect that. Behave as citizens of the king, of God's kingdom. In other words... Behave as true citizens, where Christ is king and the gospel is the law. He's essentially saying live up to who you already are in Christ Jesus. You've been rescued. You are citizens of the king. Live up to that. Behave who you already are. Live in a manner of life worthy of the gospel that you have been rescued by. True unity is found when we act like who we really are. Who are we? We've got to stop here. Who are we? Because Paul does. What do we have in common with one another? What is our common identity? I want to point out a few things here. The first is that we are transformed by the same gospel of Christ. Look at that. All over the place he says gospel of Christ. The gospel. It's, it's as if he pauses here. It's not, a, it's not a subtle reminder. Paul isn't known for his subtlety. I don't know uh, if you've caught on to that. But lo- Paul just lobs this one out here. As in this, this discourse on unity, he, he throws in the gospel several times. Remember the gospel. Remember who you are because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember the gospel that has changed your life forever. You were dead in your trespasses. You are now alive in Jesus Christ, you are, you are an, you're a new creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Just like the person sitting next to you, if indeed they've put their faith in Jesus Christ. Let us remember, even as we sit here, that we are bound by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the one true gospel. It's called the gospel, the good news, not the bad news, the good news. Don't forget that you are all one in the gospel. Even the person that maybe do things a little bit differently than you, although you know they're rescued by Jesus Christ, has been rescued by the same gospel. We are one in that good news in the gospel of Christ. There are some central transforming truths that unify us that are encompassed by that word, the gospel. Christ, who is God in the flesh, came here to this earth some 2,000 years ago. He died on a cross brutally for our sins. He took on the sins of the world. God poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. We were rescued from the wrath of God. And three days later, Jesus rose miraculously from the dead. And we can know that through his inspired word, through the authority of the word of God that we hold in our hands. And the Bible teaches that God's Holy Spirit comes into us. Those are some essential doctrines. Those are things that unify us. That's what Paul is talking about when he's referring to the gospel, those life-giving words, the good news. Now those are critical. To be sure, there are some things that we ought to divide over. It's It's those foundational truths. But we ought not go looking for those things. There are things like Jesus is God, Jesus rose from the dead, the scripture is inspired, the inerrant inerrant and authoritative. But we shouldn't go looking for things to divide us. To be sure, there are things 
that if we get an argument over, those are, those are hills to die on. But the fact of the matter is, most of the arguments, most of the divisions, most of the strife that arises in the church today are not over those central doctrines. At best, they have to do with methods and preferences. And it grieves God's heart when we divide over those things. It goes against the very heart of Christ, who was about to live the gospel by dying on the cross for us when he prayed in John chapter 17 for our unity. This is what he prayed in, in John 17, starting in verse 22. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, to us, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. This isn't the only place in this wonderful prayer in John 17 where Jesus prays for our unity. This is no small matter. We must be unified as the church. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. How are we one? Well, we're bound by the gospel, but we are also of one spirit. We are of one spirit. Paul writes in 127, standing firm in the spirit. Chapter 2, verse 1, if there's any participation in the spirit, singular, the spirit of God. The Bible teaches that the spirit of God comes into us. We are transformed by the spirit of God and, and that the, the spirit of God resides in all of us who believe in his name. Ephesians 1 says we are sealed by that same Holy Spirit. Every one of us, we are bound by one spirit. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, Paul tells them, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. How do we walk in a manner worthy? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's who we are. That is our identity. That is our unifier, first and foremost. This is the theological basis for true unity. Paul is saying in Philippians, in Philippians 2.1, if you're experiencing and enjoying new life in the Holy Spirit, you mustn't neglect the unifying nature of that Spirit. We can't escape it, whether we want to or not. We are bound by the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is determined to gently continue to unify us in Jesus' name. This is who we are. I hope you see that this is bigger than common interests. This is bigger than what might unify people at a concert or a convention or a football game. This, this is at the very core of our being. This is who we are. We are unified by the Spirit, one God, one Spirit, one Father, one Son, one truth. We aren't united because we like cars or chess or knitting. Although those are great things, those are things that we have in common, perhaps. We're united because the same Spirit of God is indwelling each one of us. I want to pause here just for a moment to allow you to survey your life and consider the relationships, maybe even strained relationships that you have in your family, maybe in the workplace, maybe even here in the community of faith. Why are they strained? And can we agree 
perhaps in, in your varying circumstances, that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you have the Spirit of God in you? And can we agree that the other person that maybe you don't like so much or that irritates you right now, would you have to concede if in fact they have put their faith in Christ that they have the Holy Spirit in them, one, that one spirit, that one gospel? And that's all we need. That's our unifier. We have to start there. And we have to filter our disagreements and our perceptions and our methods through that unifier. Finally, the last unifier that I want to talk about is that we share in the hope of eternity. Philippians 4.3, Paul writes, ever so subtly, or not so subtly, he says, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. I, I, I think it's... Um, it's almost humorous the way he throws that in there. Remember who you're struggling with. Remember who you're fighting side by side with, who you're doing church with, who you're arguing with. Their names are written indelibly in the book of life. Let us consider eternity in the face of the, the quarrels and the rifts that we have in front of us. Let us remember that we will all be together in heaven singing out in one voice to one God whose names are in the book of life. This is a, a gentle reminder that the person that might annoy us or who that we are odds with, their names are in the book of life. Let's weigh our differences in the face of eternity. The beauty here is that the foundation for unity is already in place because of Christ's redeeming work on the cross. It's there, the one spirit, the one gospel. It's in place. We have, the unifier is there. We don't have to go looking for something in common if we are in fact, followers of Christ together. We don't have to go looking for something in common. It's already there. It far exceeds any sort of unanimity we may find in common interests. We don't have to find a good cause to rally around. It's been given to us. It's called the gospel. However, it doesn't mean that we can just assume that unity will find its place and that unity will just happen. Experience has taught us the contrary. So... True unity doesn't just happen. True unity requires deliberate action. One of the worst things we could do this morning after, after studying unity out of the book of Philippians is walk out of here and say, yes, unity is a good virtue. I agree that we should all be unified. And just sort of leave it at that. To agree that unity is a good thing is not unity. That's not what unity is. We all have a role in this. We have a part in this. It doesn't just happen. Unity is non-negotiable Christ-like attribute that if absent shows that there's something seriously wrong in the church body. If Jesus prayed for our unity several times, it means that it's important. And Jesus didn't just pray for us as sort of a, a mass of people. He prayed for you individually that you would seek unity, that we would seek unity together. But it doesn't just happen. We must fight to maintain true unity. We cannot passively sit and hope for the best. Paul uses actually some, uh, some, some warfare or some battle imagery here. Look what he says here. He says, stand firm. Strive side by side. This, this, uh, this phrase, strive side by side, could literally mean fight as one man. 
fight together as one man. The picture that we have here and the picture that may very likely have have appeared in the Philippians' mind is that of a battle formation, an, an ancient Greek battle formation called the phalanx. This is what it looks like up here on the screen. It's a phalanx. And what it is is, is the men, the soldiers, would stand side by side, as you see, and their shields would be overlapping one another, essentially creating one single unit with the spears of the person behind them protruding out the front row, as you see on this picture behind us. That's, that's the, the, the picture that Paul is conjuring up here. Fight as one man. Strive side by side together. Depend upon one another. Fight for one another. Believe the best in one another. Rely on one another. But true unity is also a very delicate thing. We have to fight for it. It doesn't just happen because true unity is very, very delicate. Paul says in, in chapter 4 here, when he's intruding he, uh, the, the two women, Yodia and Syntyche, I treat Yodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. To agree in the Lord, that phrase means to live in harmony with one another. Harmony is a beautiful thing, but it's a delicate thing. Have you ever heard people singing in harmony, particularly siblings who, who are adept musically? It's, it's beautiful. There's nothing like it when they're singing in harmony with one another. But imagine if the choir were up here and everyone wanted, wanted to just sing the melody. Nobody wanted to sing the harmony. We would miss out on the richness that the harmony brings to the music. That's, that's the picture that Paul has here for these women, to live in harmony with one another. To include one another. To build one another up. To cover, to, to protect their weaknesses and submit to their strengths. Harmony means knowing what you are good at and what you aren't good at. That's what you need for harmony, to live in harmony with one another. There's so many things we wish we were good at. And we like to think that we're good at. Realizing that there's probably other people who are better and so taking a realistic perspective on, on what we're good at and what we're not good at and then playing to those in the body of Christ. It means not pretending to be an expert when you really aren't. Yielding to another. The truth of the matter is that the enemy is trying to kill unity. The enemy, Satan and his minions, want nothing more than to divide us. Jesus prayed fervently for our unity, but he also prayed that we would be protected from the evil one. Why? Because he knew that there's a spiritual battle going on and that the enemy wants to divide us. He wants to create disunity, rifts, strife, and division. Those things are not from God. Paul points out a unity killer that I'd like to hone in on. Just one for now. There's a unity killer, a huge one, called fear. Fear is a giant unity killer. I was thinking about fear, you know, and my mind sort of, sort of wandered a little bit to uh, just the, uh, the incidental fear of, of being startled by someone. My son, Jesse, uh, loves to startle his siblings. He likes to hide around corners and jump out and, and scare them. And, and what, I've, what I've observed is that re there's really two ways that people respond to being startling. And I think that, that, that the way in, w in which we respond, actually, it transfers over in many ways to the way in which we respond in, in unity. But, but the first way is, uh, is that people, um, people uh, respond in attack mode. 
My dad is that way. When he's startled, when he responds to being startled, he, he goes into attack mode. And I, I, I hesitated to tell you this story because I don't want to paint a bad picture of my dad, but it's too funny. My brother, when he was nine years old, was hiding down the hallway. He saw my dad coming, and my dad had some papers in his hand. So my brother was hiding down the hallway in his room, and his master plan at nine years old was to hide like this and jump out and scare my dad. Now, I knew better. I was a lot older. I knew better that you just don't do that to my father. I don't know what sort of training he got in the military, but you don't mess with that. And so my brother decided this would be a good idea, and he jumped out and he startled my dad. And my dad, without thinking, he kicked my brother right in the chest. And my, my brother flew back. He, he flew back the rest of the hallway and hit, the, hit the, uh, the linen closet at the back of the hallway and slumped down. He was fine. He wasn't injured except for his pride. And, and you got to know, my dad is a loving father. He would never do anything like that intentionally. But, you know, if you, you tap into Rambo there, then something's going to happen. He, was, he felt so bad. He was so sorry that he did that. But I think that people respond in fear in the same way many of us do. When we're living in community with one another, we go into attack mode. It's almost like a, 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 a social, spiritual game of king of the, of the hill. Have you ever, you ever played that when you were a child? The object is basically to be the one standing on the hill, and anyone that tries to get up there, you knock them down and you throw them down. That's what mode we go into, many of us, when fear strikes, when we're afraid of being disrespected, when we're afraid of, of, being, of not being heard, when we're afraid of being let down or disappointed in the body of Christ as we're interacting with one another. Out of fear, we go into attack mode. Paul calls that in, in, in Philippians 2, he calls that rivalry. Is there rivalry among you? You're probably acting out of fear, whether you know that or not. There's fear there at the root. You're afraid of something, of being misunderstood, of being disrespected, of, of being unheard, of being disappointed. And so rather than let those things happen, we go into rivalry mode. We go into attack mode. And we start hurting those around us so that we won't get hurt. The other way that people respond is, is unfortunately, I have to admit to you that while I would rather be the kind of person that goes into attack mode when he's startled, I am more of the cower and whimper school of thought. Where my, my initial reaction, I'm not proud of, to stand up here and tell you this, when I get startled, that's my automatic reaction is everything just kind of seizes and I just uh, do one of those things. Some of us respond that way to, to, to our fear that is within us. We close off because we don't want to be disrespected. We don't want to be misunderstood. We don't want to be hurt again like we have in the past. And so rather than interacting in unity and putting ourselves out on the line, we create a bubble around ourselves. We create a shell around ourselves. Paul refers to that as conceit. Both of these things betray a sense of self-sufficiency, that I don't need anybody else. I don't need you. I have this bubble that I've created around myself because of deep fear within me of being hurt, of being abused, or whatever. Because we all have baggage, don't we? We could all point to instances in our lives where we've been mistreated, even when we've been striving after unity, and it hurts. But Paul is saying no. You've got to leave that stuff behind. We have to fight for unity as one man. Don't give in to the lies of the enemy. Don't give in to the fear. In fact, 
it goes on to say that we need humility instead. We need to put ourselves out there. We need to confess our fear. We need to see that fear is a sin and a tool of the enemy to cause disunity and division and strife. Paul says it right here. Not in verse 28 of chapter 1, not frightened at anything by your opponents. Now those opponents could be outside the church, persecuting the church. They could be within the church. But that, that fear, there's no place for that fear in the body of Christ, particularly as we interact with one another. True unity requires humility. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count yourself count others more significant than yourselves. That's what humility is. It's counting others as more important than ourselves. This is an important key ingredient to live in true unity. Humility was not a common virtue back in Jesus' day. We need to realize that. Jesus was, a revol- was revolutionizing thought back then in the kind of, uni- or kind of humility and unity, but humility that he was displaying. It's not a virtue today either. You go online, you turn on the TV, you just listen to people the way they talk, even the way we dress. We're trying to prove something. We're trying to show, trying to, trying to paint a picture of who we want people to think that we are. The world around us is all about telling everyone else how great we are. And we're isolating one another in the process. We cannot be guilty of that. True unity requires the key ingredient of humility. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That word count is key, I think. Because it's it's speaking of a deliberate mindset, a deliberate action. It means to take the calculated decision to treat others with great importance. My sin is warring within me to make myself the most important person. We all need to make the conscious choice to be okay with feeling inconvenienced by other people. We all need to make the conscious choice. We need to to do, um, count others more significant by being ready to loan something when we see the need, to yield to another person's method when we know in our minds that our way is better and then not be there to say, I told you so later. Those are just a few examples of how it's so difficult to live in this kind of humility. But it is not a suggestion. In fact, if, if we're going to say that, yes, we're about unity, then we must be about humility. Each one of us must treat others as more important than ourselves. And it's difficult, but we can do it in Jesus' name and in the power of the Holy Spirit within us. We have to, de- be, to determine to be humble just as Christ was humble. Jesus was the ultimate, is the ultimate example of, example of humility, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. There's that word again. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. If there was one person who ever lived who could count equality with God a thing to be grasped, it was Jesus. And yet the very thing that was due him, he let go of for us. We need to realize that a lot of times the things that we, that we take, the things that we, that we count as ours, God wants to give those to you. He does. 
1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, he says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxieties, your fears on him, because he cares for you. How do we humble ourselves? We need to, first of all, we need to cast our fears on God, realizing that we can't live a life defending this bubble that we've created for ourselves. And then we need to humble ourselves to God, realizing that the things that we would like to take that we think are rightfully ours in this life, whether that's respect or the right to be heard or whatever, you fill in the blank. We need to give those to God because God will give you those in the right time, just as he gave those to Jesus, who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. And if we read on there like we're going to in the, in the coming weeks, God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him the name that is above every name. The principle is true. God has called us to humility so that he can give us what we need at the proper time. In the meantime, we don't need to count those things that we think are ours and take them. We count others as more significant than ourselves. We treat others with greater importance. I don't want you to miss Paul's passion here. He's passionate on the, about this subject of unity. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any whatsoever, if you've tasted the encouragement that comes in a community of Christ there's any comfort from love, if you've experienced the love of God, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, literally if your heart is in this, and at the very least, complete my joy. Even he, even he is tied in unity to the Philippians by being, by being unified. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I want to hear that you are unified. Why is this so important? Why is Paul so passionate about this? He really couldn't say it any other way and with any more enthusiasm and passion. Why? Well, because true unity has a profound effect, and he knows it. First of all, it empowers the church. It's a sign of assurance. Remember the phalanx? That one man, that, that one unit fighting together as one man. There's assurance in knowing that my brother or sister in Christ has my back. They believe the best in me. They're not going to talk bad about me behind my back. There's assurance in that. There's assurance in knowing that the person next to me and the person next to them and next to them, the person sitting in the pews here, we all believe the same thing. There's truth here. It's undeniable. There's assurance for us in unity. Same mind. We all have the same purpose. It's driven by the gospel of Christ. The same love. Our care for one another resembles God's benevolence. We have the example to follow. In verse 128, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The kind of unity we have, the world is thirsty for. And they, they, they know in their being that, with, that apart from Christ, they will not have what we have the kind of unity that the Spirit brings to us. There's an, with this kind of unity, we have assurance because fear is driven out because there are numbers behind what we believe in. There's an important spiritual interlocking of arms that takes place that gives great assurance and empowers the church. True unity also has a profound effect in that it gives us hands and feet. You know, one of the reasons we have divisions among us is because of the, the, varying, the varying gifts, uh, the diversity of gifts, the talents, and the personalities in the church. 
It can be unifying, but it can also be dividing. In Ephesians 4, Paul uses the metaphor of the body. We've all heard that before, that that the body is made up of different parts. In the same way, we are the body of Christ. We all have differing perspectives. We have different gifts. We have different talents, different experiences. When we come together, we can either fight over it or we can see, we can humble ourselves, we can submit to one another, esteem one another, and live in harmony and be the body of Christ. And, and have great effect on the world around us. If we all represent different parts of the body so that we work together in our diversity and do our part, number one, we will not be deceived by lies and false doctrine. And number two, in love, we will grow to be the church that Christ has rescued us to be. I found this, this quote here. It says, Christians like snowflakes are frail, but when they stick together, they can stop traffic. Okay. All right, that's a, good, that's a good picture, but I like the way Jesus said it in Matthew 16. He said that he would build his church. The Bible refers to Christ as the cornerstone and that we are like living stones being built up. Jesus would build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Never mind the traffic. It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing that God has rescued us to, this unity. And it's a sign to the world Back to Jesus' prayer in John chapter 17. Jesus prayed for unity. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. John chapter 13. The world you know, you're my disciples by your love for one another. Unity is a sign to the world around us and it will draw some. We need to live as Christ has called us to live in unity, in humility, in love. We have a purpose here on the earth that requires us to have the same mind and the same love as we live for the same gospel and be Christ's witnesses throughout the world. But it's got to start in our homes. It's got to start in our church. It has to start in our communities, and it spreads out that way. Finally, what Paul rests on in chapter, Philippians chapter 4 is that true unity is everyone's business. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion. That word there could be a proper name. It's Syzygous in the original language. It could be a proper name, and it could be Paul doing a play on words, or it could uh, just be what it, what it means. It means fellow worker or, or fellow co-laborer. But he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, that Syzygous there, Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul doesn't mince words, does he? He doesn't dance around the issue. He doesn't do what we would commonly do and go, hey, you know, so-and-so, they're arguing a lot, and yes, I know, have you heard this and that? No, Paul goes right, right to it. He even calls them by name. And I think if, if somebody were to get up here today and call out people by name, we would be really uncomfortable. But Paul doesn't mince words here. Yodia, Syntyche, knock it off. Agree in the Lord. I think we need to, we, we need to do it in, in love but we need to take a cue here from Paul. First of all is this. Some of us, unfortunately, could relate to Yodi and Syntyche right now. Now, in this case, there were women. Guys, don't 
read into this, okay? We do, we do the same thing. It looks maybe a different way, but we do the same thing. There's rifts among us. And maybe you, unfortunately, could relate to them. You could relate to Yodi or Syntyche, and, and you're at odds with somebody here. The call for you this morning is to live in harmony. You need to make that right. You need to go to your brother and sister in Christ and ask for forgiveness and begin on that road of, of restoration. What happens when one person breaks rank? The whole unit is compromised, isn't it? The other thing is that we might, you know, we might be sitting here and we might go, well, you know, I really can't re- relate to Yodi or Syntyche. I, honestly, I couldn't think of, of anybody that I'm at odds with right now, particularly in the church. And that's good. That's, uh, that, that's a wonderful thing. But we mustn't sit back and just kind of go, well, I'm fine then. I guess this sermon wasn't for me. <laughs> no. Because, he, because Paul brings in this, uh, this, uh, this syzygous. Yeah, there's something going on in our culture today where we, um, we become so individualistic uh, in our thinking and yet so sensitive to others around us that we dare not stick our noses in anyone's business. Do you, do you feel that in our culture? Do you, do you see that? And I think sometimes we don't stick our, we, we don't get involved in arguments maybe, or, or maybe there's, there, there, there are people around us who have had a falling out. We don't want to get, get involved because we tell ourselves, well, that's not my business. I don't want to be a meddler. And I'm not standing up here telling you we need to start meddling. But in some ways we do. We need to get our hands dirty in the lives of the people around us. We need to get involved. We need to be this person. We need to be the true companion. And there may be someone in your life, particularly if they're followers of Christ, who are at odds with one another, who are arguing with one another. Some of you might have just gulped just now because that's a scary thing. But you may be called upon today to do something about that because unity is everyone's business. We cannot afford to have rifts and divisions in our midst. And we are all responsible to take part in unity, whether it's us that needs to to make a relationship right or it's us that needs to intercede and to help somebody else find unity, find love, find companionship with another person. Maybe right now God is calling upon you to be more of that true companion. True unity begins with agreeing that we are partaking in the same spirit and are obedient to the same gospel of Jesus Christ. It requires that we link arms to maintain unity for the sake of Christ's church and the world around us in all humility. God is calling us to be a church of true unity. Heavenly Father, that's who we want to be. And Lord, while it's easy to, in some ways, it's easy to talk about, it's entirely different to live that. God, you may have put, put it on the hearts of, of quite a few in here to take action. Lord, you've called us all to take action, but, but I know that there are some in here uh, who, who have specific people in mind right now, and they're facing something difficult. They're facing putting themselves out there, of being humble, maybe even facing the, the possibility of rejection or whatever, and there's fear that's welling up, and I pray, God, that you would replace that with joy. I pray, Lord, that you would replace that with the sense for true unity in you, Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that, that we would have the courage to step out in faith,
and strive after, fighting as one man, fighting for this true unity that you have already rescued us to. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this community of faith. We thank you that we have the one gospel and the one Holy Spirit reigning in us. And Lord, we want to honor you in all that we say and do today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.